Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Well, we wrapped up another trading week, the first... uh week now that I'm back uh, in uh, in Puerto Rico, recovering from whatever it was I caught when I was in Colorado. And, you know, more record highs set on the day. The Dow Jones, S&P 500, the uh, NASDAQ 100 all hit new all-time record highs. Uh, the broader NASDAQ, uh, I think, just hit a high for the year, not a record high. Same thing with Russell 2000, not in record high territory there. Although the, the uh, rally is extremely narrow. The uh, equal weighted S&P, I think, was actually down on the week. Uh, so it's just a concentrated uh, group of stocks. Big tech really leading the way. Microsoft hitting a new uh, record high. Um, I know uh, Meta was at a new high for the year. I don't, I don't know if it was a record high, but the Sox Index, Semiconductors, new record high was up 4%. Of course, leading the way, NVIDIA continues uh, to make new highs. I mean, it's selling all these uh, GPUs to Microsoft. Microsoft is buying the GPUs and spending all the money. Uh, so is Meta, but these stocks are, are going up uh, as well. Uh, so it's a, it's a big tech-led rally. Again, I think uh, it's all part of the, the bubble. Um, you know, the economic data, which I'll, I'll get to a little bit later in the podcast, though, in my mind, it continues to be very negative on the economy. I think what's driving the rally, other than the, you know, the, the, the AI story, is the anticipation of the Fed rate cuts and the belief that they've pulled off the soft landing. So the Fed is not going to be cutting rates because the economy is in a recession and corporate earnings are falling. The Fed is going to be cutting rates even though the economy is not in a recession. The Fed's going to be cutting rates because supposedly inflation is no longer a threat. It's been neutralized uh, by their previous hikes. In fact, the inflation 
uh, uh, boogeyman is, 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 is so dead at this point that the Fed can cut rates, that it doesn't have to be as restrictive uh, because it's already uh, won. It's, it's, you know, the job is over. And this is a completely false narrative that is going to fall apart during the course uh, of this year. But one of the areas of the stock market that did not participate were the gold stocks. And I want to start off the podcast today by really speaking about what happened with gold stocks this week because they really uh, got killed. The uh, GDX, which is a index of senior gold stock was down 7% on the week, maybe a hair over 7%. That is a big decline. But what's very significant about this big decline is that gold itself didn't go down very much. It was down a little bit, but under 1%. That is a small move in the price of gold for a week. It shouldn't result in a 7% decline in, in gold stocks. Now, there were some uh, negative news stories that came out. The biggest one, I think, or the biggest stock, but there were other stocks that had the same uh, problem, uh, was Barrick Gold. And Barrick reported earnings that were lower than expected, although not significantly so. Uh, and the stock was down 12% that day. And uh, it was a big overreaction as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I bought more Barrick Gold myself on Wednesday. I already owned it in my personal account, and I, and I bought more. You know, I could actually talk more about this now that I'm no longer a licensed stockbroker. Yeah, I like Barrick. I think, it's a, I think it's a good company. We own a lot of it. In fact, we weren't able to buy more in our gold fund because we already had a 5% position in Barrick, and that's the limit. So unless we got new money, we couldn't really buy any more barracks. So I I don't think we added, although maybe we did later in the week. You know, I always have to check, you know, before I buy, that's part of the the SEC rules. So when I wanted to buy barrack, I had to make sure that the fund wasn't buying it or we weren't buying it for our accounts. Now, what I would have to do if we are buying it, I have to wait until all of our buying is finished and then I can buy for myself. Uh, But, you know, the, the crazy thing about it is, I can't even buy a stock when our funds are selling the stock, which makes no sense whatsoever, right? Because sometimes we have customers. It's not even within our control, right? We have a managed account and a customer wants to close. And so we have to sell off the stocks. I can't even buy a stock that they're selling, which in theory shouldn't even matter. In fact, it should help. If I'm trying to buy something that a client is selling, my buying might help them get a better price. I can understand I can't sell it before they sell because I, it may result in them getting a worse price. But you know, how would my buying hurt them if they're a seller? Right? Clearly it wouldn't, but these are these ridiculous rules uh, that, that we have to uh, follow. But I bought the stock myself. You know, I, think it's a, I think it's a great, uh, great buy, and the market overreacted. But they're not the only stock. I mean, Fortuna Silver, which is another stock that, that I own personally, we owned in the funds. I didn't buy any more of it. I, I, I bought a bunch of it, you know, when it got beat up last time. And it had a pretty good rally. 
But th that was another stock that had, you know, bad earnings that came out. But the ironic part about the bad earnings is that it's inflation. That's the problem. The companies that are reporting bad earnings, it's generally because their costs are higher than they thought. Why are their costs going up? Inflation. Inflation is driving the costs up. The problem is gold has not gone up enough to offset that because nobody realizes or believes that inflation is, is a threat. They think the threat, again, has been, has been neutralized, but it hasn't. And the fact that these mining companies continue to report these rising costs, I mean, that throws cold water on this whole inflation is dead narrative all by itself. Because if inflation was not a problem anymore, well, then gold miners wouldn't be seeing uh, these increasing costs. But everybody is seeing increasing costs. But it's particularly important uh, to this sector, especially since the sentiment is so low. The sentiment is horrible. But if you look at a chart of gold, the gold chart looks extremely good. I mean, gold is just below its all-time record high. And in fact, even though gold sold off during the week, at no point did it even go below 2000. I think the low was around 2005 or six. I mean, you know, don't hold me to that, but it was something like that. We closed the week just above 2030. So we're holding that level very well. And to me, it looks like we're getting ready for a big move up to new record highs. Yet despite that, the sentiment couldn't be worse. It, it, you know, gold stock investors are thrown in the towel to see a 7% decline this week. Now, I think part of that might have been related to the option expiration, expiration that we had today. You know, sometimes there's some crazy trades that happen around an expiration week, and we had an expiration today. Maybe there were a lot of January contracts um, and, you know, the markets tend to try to uh, punish option uh, holders and people who maybe sold the options, which is generally the way to make money in options is you write them. You don't buy them, right? You, you sell them. And maybe there were a lot of calls where people did maybe bet that gold stocks would follow gold higher. And so maybe a lot of those stocks ended up expiring worthless or, you know, those, those options today. But, you know, that's normally... What you would see, too, a lot of times the mining stocks lead the metal, but that hasn't been the case for this entire uh, bull market in gold. And gold is in a bull market when you're talking about being very close to an all-time record high. But the, the gold stocks have not been leading. They've been dragged by the metal. In fact, the gold stock investors keep expecting the price of gold to, to fall, to fall sharply. In fact, you look at all of the analysts who cover mining. Not that there's that many analysts left that even bother with middle, you know, minerals and mining and things like that. But they all have lower price forecasts for the price of gold, right? It's not 2,500 or 3,000, 1,800, 1,700. People just assume that the gold price is going to go down because they believe, again, all this nonsense coming out of the Fed. And I think this uh, negative uh, sentiment is a very 
positive contrarian indicator. You have so much bearishness in the gold mining sector relative to the outlook for the price of gold that you don't have in the metal itself. There is real buying, long-term buying in gold. The stock investors just don't really understand that. They expect the selling to come. There isn't going to be any selling. I think there's just going to be buying. I mean, sure, there's some selling, but not nearly enough to satisfy the growing global demand for gold. You know, not just, you know, industrial demand, but as an asset, not just private individuals uh, who want to get out of fiat, but governments, central banks who want to get out of dollars, who are de-dollarizing. What do you think they're doing? when they're de-dollarizing. Are they just loading up on euros? Are they loaded up on Japanese yen? No, they're not. I mean, those currencies have problems too. I mean, once you decide that you want to get rid of the dollar because of our debt problems and our inflation problems, other countries have the same problems. We're not the only major economy uh, that, that, that's printing too much money that had artificially low interest rates. So when you make the decision that you're getting out of the dollar, you're really making a decision to get into gold because that is uh, the best alternative. That's where you go when you want to get out of the dollar. Right? You don't jump from the frying pan into some other fire. You really want uh, protection, and so you go, uh, you go for gold. But it's the opposite in Bitcoin. Sentiment couldn't be worse in the gold market, which is a bullish indicator for gold, Whereas sentiment couldn't be more positive in Bitcoin, right? People who own Bitcoin have probably never been more optimistic about appreciation than they are right now, or they were up till last week when these uh, Bitcoin ETFs were launched. I'm going to, I got more about that on the other side of this break. So stick around. We'll be right back. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right. So before that break, I touched on the fact that while sentiment couldn't be worse for gold, as evident by the carnage in the gold mining stocks, but sentiment couldn't be better in fool's gold. Uh, Bitcoin. And that's another reason, and there are many reasons, but that's another reason why I'm so bearish on, on Bitcoin. And, you know, last week, and I mentioned that on my last podcast, which I, I think was a week ago, uh, the Bitcoin ETFs debuted 10 new ones, and 
the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust converted to an ETF. So it was there, but it was a closed-end fund, and then it became open-ended or ETF, and it uplisted to the stock exchange. So we have 11 ETFs, spot Bitcoin ETFs. And, you know, Bitcoin really doubled. It went from, you know, under 20,000 or more than double because on Thursday morning when these things debuted to great fanfare on CNBC, Bitcoin almost hit 49,000 or maybe it did get slightly above 49,000. Well, this morning it almost broke 40,000. It got to about 40,000, four or 500, something like that. An 18% drop in a week. And all of these Bitcoin ETFs, or maybe not 100% of them, but most of them dropped at least 20% from their intraday highs on Thursday to their lows um, today. Those are, that's a full bear market. I mean, the way Wall Street scores it, right? If, if you drop 20%, from a high to wherever you trade, that, that constitutes a bear market. So all of these uh, ETFs have only been trading for a week and they're already in bear markets. Uh, maybe that's some kind of a record for a number of uh, uh, IPOs to enter bear markets you know, in, in that short a, a, a period of time. But of course, there was nonstop media coverage on the CNBC you know, of trying to like pump and pump and pump and get people to buy these, uh, these ETFs. Of course, once they started to collapse, they, they kind of backed away. In fact, I was watching today, they never even mentioned it really once, right? These things are getting killed and they're hoping nobody uh, notices. But of course, you know, without them pumping it up, where are they going to get the buying? You know, that's what I was saying. And a lot of people say, hey, Peter Schiff gets nothing right on Bitcoin. Look, I was saying buy the rumor, sell the fact. Uh, on the ETFs for a long, long time. And a lot of people were poo-pooing that, no, 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 and well, sure enough, now those people are trying to justify the sell-off. Well, it's nothing, it's just buy the rumor, sell the fact. Yeah, but except, why weren't they saying that uh, You know, when people were buying the rumor? Uh, but um, I think it's a lot more than that because the, the, the anticipation, what everybody was betting on was that once these ETFs were there, there was going to be all this buying in the professional investor community. Like there was this whole big group of people who really wanted to buy Bitcoin. But for the last 10 years, they just haven't bought it because they didn't have a spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense to me because, you know, these are sophisticated people. I mean, they could have bought Bitcoin if they wanted to. I mean, first of all, they could have bought the, the, the Bitcoin futures ETFs, pretty much same exposure. They could have bought MicroStrategy. I mean, a lot of them probably did. I mean, it's basically de facto a, a Bitcoin uh, trust. They could have bought the Grayscale Trust at a 40, 50% discount if they really wanted exposure, right? That was a pretty good way to get it. Um, you know, foreign uh, countries had spot Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, you know, Americans could buy on foreign exchanges. I mean, we do it all the time. So I don't think there really was this big barrier. I don't think there was this pent-up demand that is now going to be unleashed. And I really don't think the investment advisor community is going to touch this stuff. I mean, the fiduciaries, they don't want to go out on a limb and buy Bitcoin. I mean, what if it goes down? I mean, they can get sued. You know, they're not going to find sympathetic arbitrators, especially when, you know, 
Gary Gensler and all the guys are saying, hey, this is gambling, this is worthless, it's going to go down. I don't think the fiduciaries want to even risk it. I mean, what's in it for them? I mean, if it goes up, okay. But if it goes down and, you know, there's a heads I win, tails you lose kind of mentality on Wall Street, I don't think stock brokers are going to recommend it either. I don't think the big brokerage firms, the Morgan Stanleys, the Merrill Lynch's, Bank of America's, uh, I don't think these guys are Bank of America owns Merrill now, but you know all these big the big firms, their compliance officers are not going to let um, their reps solicit this stuff. I mean, all the tickets to buy these ETFs are going to have to be unsolicited, and certainly for retirement accounts. Now that's where people think that the main demand is going to come from, because. They, you know, because at least if you want to buy Bitcoin and self-custody it, it's pretty easy. But if you want to buy it with your IRA money, it's a little bit more difficult. But there's no way an investment advisor is going to call up a client, a stockbroker, and say, yeah, you should put this Bitcoin ETF in your IRA. I mean, you're just asking for a lawsuit there, you know, if it goes down. So I, I just don't think there's going to be all this demand. So it's, it's not if we build it, they will come. They built it, no one's coming. Everybody's selling, right? People already, already bought, they loaded up. Like, why is somebody going to sit back? If you really think that these Bitcoin ETFs are going to make the price of Bitcoin go up, you're not going to wait for the ETF and buy it at a higher price. You're just going to buy right now, right? Why wait to buy higher when you could just buy lower? And that's what people already did. And so now uh, it's time to sell. So I, I think you have... The extreme polar opposites when it comes to sentiment couldn't be worse in gold, couldn't be better in fool's gold. The markets are going to confound that. Markets try to disappoint and confound as many uh, participants as they can. And the way that's going to happen, I think, is with Bitcoin going down and, and gold going up and gold stocks going way up. So again, in the meantime, you know, take advantage. I think we're buying the floor here. I think 2000 is the floor. So 2030, that's a great place for gold to buy. Silver, going, great place to buy here. Half its highs, less. You know, so contact shift gold. And again, if you are uh, uh, looking for the home run, if you really want some optionality, if you want a levered play, forget about buying crypto. Uh, you're going to get much better risk reward in the mining stocks. I mean, that's where I'm putting my money. Again, I put a bunch more of my own money into these stocks. Uh, I didn't just buy Barrick. Um, and, um, you know, I- I'm making that bet. You know, and-, and it is a bet. These mining stocks, as you can see, you know, they can have all kinds of problems. And they do have all kinds of problems. But that's one of the reasons that they're cheap. But I think they're going to benefit dramatically from a reevaluation of the price of gold, which is going to happen. I mean, 2000 is the floor. The ceiling is the sky. I think that, you know, once we really take off, we're not looking back. I mean, everybody wants to talk about a moonshot for Bitcoin. It's not Bitcoin. It's going to the moon. Uh, it, it's gold. Uh, it, it has to, based on all of the, uh, the, the, the things that I know the Federal Reserve and other central banks are going to be doing in the immediate future, and in the U.S. this year in particular, because it is an election year, and the Fed is going to do everything it can to reelect um, uh, or Biden. And I'm going to talk politics uh, in a bit, 
uh, because, you know, we had the Iowa caucus. Uh, we got the New Hampshire primary coming up next week. So I'm going to talk politics. But before I do that, I just wanted to go over some of the economic data that come out during the week, you know, while the market was making new highs and everybody was celebrating. Uh, there is actually bad news if you if you look at it. So first of all, the Empire State Manufacturing Index came out, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, because um, Monday was a holiday. Um, and it was supposed to come out at minus 4.7. And it came out at minus 43.7. 43.7. I mean, this is like the worst number since the COVID lockdowns. And I think back to back, it's we have the biggest two-month uh, decline in the history of the Empire State Manufacturing Index. I mean, manufacturing is a complete disaster. In fact, we got the Philly Fed Manufacturing Index later in the week. This was supposed to be minus 6.7. It came out at minus 10.6. And the prior month, which was originally reported as minus 10.5, was revised to minus 12.8. This is the fifth consecutive month where this index has been negative. But it's been negative for 18 out of the past 20 months. This is a massive manufacturing recession. Remember, on my last podcast, I talked about this you know, surrogate from the Biden administration that was on TV talking about this booming manufacturing economy that we've had under under Biden is a complete lie. There is no renaissance. (laughs) Every president, manufacturing renaissance. We are in the dark ages in U.S. manufacturing. And and that's the important part of the economy. The, 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 The news that people are celebrating is really inflation in disguise. For example, one piece of good economic data that came out during the week was retail sales for December, which was up more than the forecast. It was up 0.6, and the forecast was up 0.4. So everybody, oh, this is great, right? Retail sales are up more than expected. The economy is in good shape. Retail sales are up because prices are up. That's why, yeah, prices go up. It costs more to buy stuff. So that means retail sales go up. These numbers are not adjusted for inflation. And even if they were adjusted, it, it, it still wouldn't be right because the government inflation numbers are too low. But also, where are Americans getting the money to buy all this stuff? A lot of it is being borrowed. I went over that the last podcast. Record high credit card debt, record high consumer debt overall. Consumers are going into debt to buy stuff. And they're using that borrowed money to bid up prices. That's another reason why inflation is getting worse. Because inflation, remember, it's not just an increase in the supply of money, it's an increase in the supply of credit. Because as far as the consumer is concerned, spending money and spending credit are the same thing. Because you could take credit into a store and buy stuff even if you have no money. 
And that's what moves prices. It's all this people going out and buying stuff, competing with one another and bidding prices higher. And so credit has been expanding, even though we've had a slight contraction in the money supply, which is nothing compared to the massive expansion that preceded it, but we've never had a contraction of credit. Credit continues to go up, and that is inflationary pressures. It's going to keep pushing prices up. Again, all this talk about inflation being dead and buried is, is BS. It is resurrecting. You're going to see uh, a resurgence of these inflation numbers. In fact, some of the economic data that came out today, we got a, a, an uptick in consumer sentiment, and much bigger than expected. One of the reasons for that increase in consumer sentiment um, was an expectation that inflation will be lower. It went, the expectation went from plus or 3.1% to 2.9%. So consumers expecting uh, a little less inflation. Although I think the main reason that uh, the consumer sentiment peaked up or picked up um, was the stock market going up. We've had this surge in the stock market, and so people feel wealthier. But also Trump, and I'm going to get into this after the break, but Trump is now the betting favorite to win the White House, something that I've been predicting for a while. He was the underdog, uh, and now he's the favorite. And maybe people thinking that we're, you know, we can see the light at the end of this Biden tunnel, right? People think, oh, Trump is going to come riding to the rescue like the cavalry, and, and things are going to get better. So maybe more optimism among Republicans now that it looks like Trump is going to win. Uh, that may be the reason for the increasing sentiment. Anyway, we got a quick commercial. We'll be right back. I got a lot more to talk about in this podcast, so don't go anywhere. I got- Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, One more uh, economic data point that I, I want to focus in from the week, and that was existing home sales, which actually dropped. The expectation was likely for a rise, uh, and existing home sales actually fell in the month of December, which would surprise people because mortgage rates backed off quite a bit as a result of the decline in, in, uh, in treasury yields. Yet despite that relief on the mortgage front, existing home sales, which is most of the sales, right, because most of the homes that are bought are not brand new homes that were built. They're the existing homes that that are already there, right? The existing housing stock is is far larger uh, than than new constructions. And it went down. And in fact, month over month, it was down 1%. And the year over year, um, you know, it's still down 6.2%, not as big as the 7.3% for the prior month, but still down on the month, month over month. Uh, And that just shows you how weak this market is because people can't afford to pay these prices. That's why these existing homes aren't selling. The people who are in them have low mortgages and they're not motivated to sell. And the people who want to buy them can't afford to buy them because they can't get those rock bottom mortgage rates. And even though mortgage rates have come down, they're still not low enough for them to afford the prices that the existing homeowners want. And eventually something has to give. But, you know, 
if the prices really drop, the guys that own the homes don't want to sell because where are they going to live? Because rents have gone up. I mean, they've got these cushy low mortgages that they don't want to give up. Now, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll rent out their homes so they can hang on uh, to the mortgage. But this is more uh, of a sign of just how bad the economy is. And it's, it's going to get a lot worse than that. Anyway, a couple of other stories that I want to talk about before I get into uh, the politics. One, well, I guess it's got some political uh, implications, but just found out that a judge, I think this was yesterday, or was it earlier today? I forget. But JetBlue was going to merge with Spirit Airlines. And of course, there's lawsuits from the government because the government is like, no, no, we can't have this. This is bad for the consumer, or right? This is anti-competitive because two competitors are going to become one. And so therefore, maybe there'll be fewer routes and, and so prices might be higher. And so they use the, you know, the antitrust laws to file a lawsuit. And a judge basically agreed with the government and canceled the merger. Now, when the news comes out, uh, you know, the immediately, I think, after... Spirit Airlines announced that it's filing for bankruptcy uh, because, you know, this is why it's merging. I mean, it can't survive on its own. And, it, you know, the merger was its only chance, which, you know, shows you how ridiculous the government lawsuit is because without the merger, the company is going out of business. And in fact, it may even go into liquidation. The ironic result of the government blocking the merger because they say that it's going to harm competition and cause prices to go up, is that competition will be harmed even more and prices will rise even further by blocking the merger and having the company go out of business. In fact, look at all the other airlines. You know, their, their stock prices shot up when the government did that. Why? Because that means, ah, this is good for us. We can charge even higher prices. Again, everything the government does backfires, right? It would be better if the government stayed out of it and let the, the free market function. You know, our politicians could learn a lot uh, from Malay, right? Javier Malay, the new president of Argentina, who gave a brilliant speech at Davos, probably the best speech that any politician, I even don't even like to call him a politician because he's above that, but that any head of state ever gave at Davos that, you know, this is the best, best talk ever given. I tweeted it out. Somebody uh, put an AI translated version where AI translated his Spanish speech into English in his voice. And I retweeted that, but it is a great speech. It looks like he ripped it right out of a Ayn Rand novel, uh, but you should read it or not listen to it. It's up on my, on my Twitter. Uh, by the way, if you're not following me, I'm still trying to get to a million Twitter followers. I'm having a hard time with this last 10,000. Uh, so um, if you're not following me, follow me. But you can go and you can listen to his entire 20-minute speech. It's certainly worth listening to. It's a great speech. I really wish uh, that we had uh, a president like that here in America. If we even had somebody to vote for, somebody running for president, anywhere near the cal- caliber. Uh, but he understands this. But Here's the the biggest irony of it all when it comes to the airlines. The government is upset that this merger may 
limit competition. And so it wants to stop the private sector from uh, operating more efficiently, which is what the goal was of this merger, was to, to create economies of scale, to create efficiencies that ultimately would benefit the consumer. Right? The government action is what's harming the consumer. But if the government really cared about the, the consumer, about you know, people buying airline tickets, right? one, they wouldn't be harassing the hell out of them with the TSA. Right. I mean, that's one of the main reasons that I'm that I'm, you know, I'm flying on net jets now and spending all this money just so I can. It's like a tax I'm paying to avoid the TSA and all that, all that stuff. But apart from that. What the government could do. Is remove the legal impediment that it has imposed. That prohibits foreign carriers from competing with domestic carriers on U.S. routes. The government, and I've talked about this on the podcast in the past, but, you know, not everybody heard that podcast, so I'm not, you know, sometimes I have to, I have to you know, go over the same material uh, twice, but a lot of you might not have heard this. And most Americans don't even know this. But it is illegal, based on U.S. government rules, it is illegal for a foreign carrier to sell tickets on a domestic route, even if the plane is flying that route. And if you're not sure what I mean, let's say you got um, uh, Air New Zealand, for example. Let's say you got an Air New Zealand flight that starts out in New York and then flies to LA. So people in New York want to go to New Zealand. People in LA want to go to New Zealand. So they buy a ticket on this Air New Zealand plane. And so it starts in New York, and then the New Yorkers, they board the plane. Then the plane flies to L.A. Now, of course, it's got a lot of empty seats, right, because it's waiting to pick up the rest of the passengers in L.A. who also want to go to New Zealand. So it flies from New York uh, to L.A. and then picks up the rest of the passengers. And then it takes the full plane and flies to Auckland or whatever, right? Well, why can't Air New Zealand sell a ticket from New York to LA, right? Because the, the, the plane is like half empty. A lot of people want to go from New York to LA. You got this beautiful airplane, right? That are, you know, a lot nicer than a lot of the domestic airlines. Great quality, you know, business class, first class seats, right? They're empty, right? Why can't Air New Zealand sell those tickets? Why can't someone just buy a ticket from New York to Los Angeles on Air New Zealand? Because the government won't let them. The government is prohibiting it by law to limit competition and cause air prices to be higher. Right? If all of these planes, all these carriers, Air New Zealand, Qantas, you know, Cathay Pacific, Singapore Airlines, Emirates, if all these airlines that are already flying above the United States and landing at our airports, if the U.S. government simply allowed these planes to sell tickets on their empty seats, it's the same amount of fuel, right? We're wasting all this fuel. People could be sitting in those seats. Why are they not there? Because the U.S. government won't let them there. So think about the hypocrisy of trying to block this merger. 
because, oh, this might result in higher prices. What the government is doing is causing higher prices. And that's the only justification. The only reason they're doing it is to keep prices higher for United Airlines and Delta Airlines and American Airlines, right? They don't want to have to compete with these other airlines. So they got the government to limit their competition, right? So this is what government does. Government pretends it's our friend. Oh, we got to protect the consumer. No, it's the government that is harming the consumer. The consumer needs protection from government, not from the free market. See, Malay understands this, but none of our leaders do. Anyway, now I want to, um, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention before I get into politics. Because I happened to find this, and I tweeted it out. But um, the, the, Matthew Goldstein, he's a reporter from the New York Times, right? I didn't sue the New York Times for defamation. I only sued in one uh, in, uh, in Australia. But th- this guy told a lot of lies in his, uh, in his article. And one of them was that my bank had lax uh, um, compliance, that our customer vetting was light. And he claimed that people told him that, that customers of the bank told him that, which I know is a lie because I got discovery, not from him, but I got discovery from his partners. And he was CC'd on a lot of these emails. All of the former customers of my bank that they talked to told them how heavy our customer vetting was, right? Not light. Nobody, nobody said that we didn't do a lot of due diligence on our customers. All the referral agents, everybody, 100% of the evidence that they had uh, was the opposite of what they, they portrayed. But Matt Goodson, uh, Goldstein rather, Goldstein, actually quoted from a guy who opened up an account at my bank. And he used this guy who opened this account as an example of somebody who said that our customer vetting was light. Now, this guy... Um, was working with an organization that only opened an account just to kind of prove uh, that you could do it. They were trying to investigate you know, how you would set up an offshore company and get up an offshore bank account. So they kind of opened up the account under a false pretense. They never really intended to use the account. They just wanted to get it opened up. And it turns out that you know, this guy actually did open up an account. But I did a little research into this account, and it took the guy over three weeks to get his account open, number one. And he only funded it with 425 pounds, which were wired in, right? It's not like the guy brought cash in a a briefcase. He wired in through the banking system 425 pounds to fund his account, and then never did a single transaction. So how would this guy have any knowledge about our compliance and customer vetting when he never even uses 425 pound account for anything. But then I stumbled across a YouTube video and it was an hour and a half video. I mean, I didn't stumble across it. I was looking for stuff on this organization and I found this video from 2018, like March of 2018, where they're talking about the very guy that Matthew Goldstein quoted in his New York Times article as saying that my bank had light customer vetting. He's talking about his experience opening up his account at my bank. 
And that was about two, two or three minutes of this uh, one and a half hour you know, panel discussion. So I copied that, I, I, I made a video and I tweeted it out. And you gotta go to my Twitter and look at this video of, of these two guys. There's two guys that were doing it, but the one guy is the guy that Goldstein quoted. And he goes on about talking about how much work he had to do to open up his account, how the bank asked him all sorts of questions that they weren't even prepared to answer because they didn't expect to get all these questions. So not only was the customer vetting not lighter than they thought, they weren't surprised by how light it was, the way Matthew Goldstein wrote, they were surprised at how thorough the investigation was. They talked about all the paperwork, all the stuff they had to do, all the things we had to, we asked them. They talked about all the KYC they were doing. And then they actually said, you know, this is hard to do. We had to give them a lot of information. They do a lot more work than your, the London banks, the UK banks that we opened up accounts at. There, it was very simple. You know, we just paid 12 pounds and they opened up the account that day. With my bank, we put them through the ringer. They're admitting that. They're telling this audience how much due diligence we did. Yet none of that was reported uh, by the New York Times. He ignored all that. He just made all this stuff up. He just lied. Because Matthew Goldstein's goal was to portray my bank as being guilty. But even though they had no evidence to suggest guilt, in fact, all of the evidence showed innocence, they had to lie about it. And so he lied about it too. The, the New York Times, none of this stuff is believable, right? You, just because they say something, just because they put quotes on it, you can't believe a word that is written in that rag, right? It, they should be using the New York Times just you know, uh, to wrap fish or maybe to put on the bottom of a birdcage or something like that. You don't want to believe it or read it because you can't believe anything that they write. This guy, Matthew Goldstein, is a liar and a fraud. Uh, anyway, I want to move uh, to the politics. So Donald Trump won the, um, the Iowa caucus. He didn't just win it. I mean, he won by a record margin. And there are a lot of people running, right? And he still got just over 50% of, of the vote. Now, after the Iowa caucus... Uh, Ramaswamy dropped out, and probably to nobody's surprise, he has endorsed Donald Trump. Um, and so the New Hampshire primary is coming up uh, on Tuesday. And there's only two other people left in the race. You, you, you've got DeSantis and you've got uh, Haley. Now, there's no more debates. In fact, they, had, they tried to schedule some debates, but Trump still didn't want to debate. And then Haley said, well, I'm not debating without Trump because she just didn't want to go one-on-one with DeSantis. So there's no more debates. That's it, right? We're just going to have uh, the primary. In fact, if they're not going to have any debates for the New Hampshire primary, that's, there's going to be no debates uh, probably for the, the bigger primaries. You know, we have a lot of them coming up in February and then March. So Trump should have the whole nomination locked up you know, at the latest by March, if not, you know, if not maybe sooner. I don't see how anybody is going to dig into his lead. Rand Paul helped him out a bit uh, by coming out and, you know, never Nikki 
And I agree with Rand. I mean, I think of the, the candidates that are left, uh, Nikki Haley is the worst. Uh, and so being anti-Nikki, I think, did help Trump because, you know, she was kind of rising in the polls. And she may do okay in, um, in New Hampshire because there's no Democratic primary in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is kind of an open primary, so the Democrats can vote in the Republican primary if they don't want to vote in the Democratic Party, which they won't do because there is no uh, primary. So there may be a lot of Democrats that want to just show up and embarrass Trump and vote for Nikki Haley because she's the most Democrat-like of the other candidates. I mean, personally, people ask me, I mean, DeSantis um, is the best of the group of, the, of who's left. Um, I don't think he's going to win. The reason I prefer DeSantis to Trump is at least he acknowledged that we got to cut Social Security and Medicare. We got to cut entitlement spending. And Trump attacked him for that. Trump, that, that's how he beat up on him. Oh, he wants to cut Social Security. Well, we got to cut Social Security, right? I mean, that's what we have to do. What do they think Malay is doing, right? He's slashing and burning. He's taking a chainsaw. He's eliminating agencies and departments. Donald Trump didn't eliminate any agencies. He added the Space Force. Right? I, I, we need somebody to cut government. You know, you can't talk about the deficit problem without talking about entitlements. You can't just look at discretionary spending. The, the deficit that we have now, the multi-trillion dollar deficit, even the official budget deficit, which is about half of the real deficit, right? Because the, the national debt is growing by $4 trillion a year. Yet they claim our deficits are only $2 trillion a year. Well, how is it possible that the debt is growing by $4 trillion if we're only borrowing $2 trillion? Obviously, they're lying, right? The, the actual debt is what's reliable, not what the government claims they're borrowing, but what they're actually borrowing. But the, the $2 trillion <coughs> deficit, that exceeds all the discretionary spending. So even if the government eliminated 100% of discretionary spending, which it's not going to do, we still have a deficit. So you, you, you got to talk about uh, the entitlements. You, can't, you don't just talk about it. you got to cut them, especially with Social Security and Medicare, which are already broke. Again, people are talking about the fact that the trust funds are going to run out of money, uh, you know, in 2034 or something like that, which is not too far off. And, of course, they're going to run out of money before then uh, because that assumes no recession. But they've already run out of money. They just haven't run out of bonds, right? They're selling their bonds. It's already broke. Remember, I've talked about this. Social Security is not collecting enough in payroll taxes to cover the current obligations. And so where is the Social Security Trust Fund getting the money to pay the benefits? It is selling U.S. Treasuries into the market in competition with the Treasury itself. That is part of the problem. Japan is selling treasuries. China, their whole world is selling treasuries. And the Fed is selling treasuries every month. Who's buying them? Beats the hell out of me. I mean, I wouldn't want to buy them. I mean, I know there are some people buying them. The money markets are buying them, right? They're buying the short-term treasuries. Who the hell's buying a 10-year or a 30-year, right? You got to have your head examined. Now, some speculators bought them. Right. They got they got a bid when the yields were up at five percent. I think you had some traders come in. They're selling now. Right. Bond yields are headed back up. 
I think they're headed back up to 5% and higher. The Fed already panicked. That's when the Fed pivoted, when rates were up 5%. That's why they pivoted, not because they, they won the inflation war, because they were losing the bond war. They know that we can't afford to pay these yields, and so they did the pivot. But the next time, when rates go back up again, what, they can't already pivot on rates. They've already done that. They're going to have to pivot on QE. That is going to be the big pivot, which I believe is going to happen this year. It's going to happen before the election because they're going to do whatever they can, again, to stop Trump. I mean, they already have, right? They've, they've charged him with all sorts of crimes, and that doesn't work, right? That, that, that hasn't done anything. So how, how are they going to keep him from the nomination? Well, they've got to try to convince the voters that the economy isn't as lousy as they all know it is. I mean, that is the reason that he's popular, because Biden is so unpopular, and so is Kamala Harris, by the way. You know, and so even if Biden steps down, if Harris fills his place, that's not going to help. And I don't know how Biden steps down and they bypass Harris and piss off all the African-Americans, right? Unless they're going to come up with another African-American woman to, to cut the Fed. That's all they got. And, you know, Powell, you know, and Trump, there's no love loss there. I mean, Trump appointed him, but then, you know, they got into a big argument, right? He was, you know, beating up Powell all the time, uh, threatening to fire Powell. Uh, so Powell probably doesn't want Trump to win. <laughs> and so what are they going to do? They're going to go back to QE. They're going to go back to creating more inflation. And they're just going to hope that the consequences of that inflation, the negative consequences, don't show up until after Biden is re- reelected. But they're hoping to get the positive, right? They're hoping to boost the markets, boost real estate, right? Make people feel better, right? Because they got more money. And that's what's going to happen. And nobody's really focusing on that. But that's going to be a huge positive catalyst for, uh, for the price of gold and for these mining stocks. And I know that during Trump's first term, it was a pretty bad four years to be in the gold business. I mean, Schiff Gold and all the major gold companies saw a drop in sales when Trump was president. Why? Because so many gold buyers were Trump voters. And these Trump voters were very optimistic during Trump's first term that Trump was going to do what he said he was going to do when he ran the first time, which was, you know, pay off the national debt, right? That's what he was going to do, right? He was going to have such a booming economy. He was going to reinvigorate manufacturing. He was going to cut government, make government smaller, make America great again. And so a lot of the Trump voters who would normally be buying gold, who were buying gold when Obama was president, they stopped buying because they believed all this. They don't believe that anymore. I mean, Trump may get reelected, but he's not running on the same platform that he ran on before, right? He just wants to, he's running really on the anti-Biden, the economy stinks, everything was great when I was president, but no deficits are going to be reduced, right? No manufacturing is going to be revived. All we're going to do is get rid of Biden, but we're not going to get rid of the debt. We're not going to get rid of the inflation. And in fact, the inflation uh, that started well before Biden took office is going to get worse regardless of who wins the next election. And so you're not going to see the same type of reaction uh, where people are going to you know, not buy gold. They're going to be buying even more gold. 
uh, uh, during Trump's term than they're buying now uh, uh, during the Biden term. So the key is to load up on it when you can. Uh, don't wait for uh, you know Powell to actually show his hand and go back to QE, which is, is coming. In fact, some Fed speakers have already hinted on tapering back the, um, uh, the, 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 the QT, which is the first step to ending it and then reversing it, which they are going to do, right? I think before the election, that's the only thing they have. They are going to uh, crank up the presses. It may start as early as March because that's when uh, the, the program to bail out the banks from last March expires. And so they have to do something. And so that may be the catalyst uh, to restart quantitative easing. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. Hopefully everybody has a great weekend. Again, don't forget, uh, give the podcast a, a, a like if you liked it. Uh, leave a comment on, on the YouTube channel. Uh, and I do, again, I do read those comments. Not all of them, <laughs> but, but I glance through them and I comment on some of them. So you never know if you leave me a comment. Uh, if it's short, they got to be short. Sometimes people think, you know, they write a long comment. I, I, then I can't even read it. So keep it, keep it short like a tweet, very concise. And then I might, I, I might read it. Anyway, bye for now.